Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of SFP Now. Um, it, it's the summer, as you can tell, and uh, because of such, um, we're, we're kind of dropping the TV segment uh, for a little while, um, at least until the TV shows that we discuss come back on the air. Um, so we're just going to go straight with the interview segment. And uh, this week we have another episode of uh, Beyond Impossible with Julian Chambliss. So I'm going to hand over to Julian, who will do all the introductions. Hi, thanks, Ian. Uh, thanks again for joining us for Beyond Impossible. This week uh, we have the honor of talking to John Jennings, who is a professor, an artist, who, if you know the sort of black comic art world, you've probably seen images created by him. He is uh, really well known for his cover art, but also is a working artist and does some incredible projects. It was a real opportunity for us to sort of talk with him. And of course, he actually has a very special project that many people are really excited about, a new graphic interpretation of Octavia Butler's Kindred. So we'll get a chance to talk about that as well. So, John, welcome. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, How are you doing? Out of me. Really pleasure. So um, I want to definitely make sure that we get a chance to talk about all your projects, but I'm sure people will be really interested in your background. So could you tell a little bit about how you came to be, I think, I know you're a professor at uh, SUNY Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Um, what was some of your path to arriving at the professorship, and why did you choose that path? Uh, that's interesting. Uh, well, let's see. All right, so originally I'm from Mississippi. I, um, I grew up reading uh, comics and science fiction and fantasy, like, off in the boonies, you know, in a small town called Flora, Mississippi. And I always wanted to, I was always moved by, you know, the fantastic you know, to a certain degree. And, you know, my mother introduced me to science fiction and fantasy and comics, like, super early, you know. Thanks, Mom, you know. And, um, yeah, and so I, I always had a penchant for, like, superheroes, and I, always, I was always interested in, like, you know, this superstitions and the occult and, like, the, you know, Twilight Zone and it, everything connected to those things. But, you know, I was also making my own stories and drawing things, like, constantly. So um, I ended up... Uh, you know, becoming an art major at Jackson State University. Um, I see, I was 89, right? And I uh, was working for the local newspaper, the, um, the uh, Clarion Ledger uh, in Jackson, Mississippi. And I got the opportunity to go to graduate school. And I was like, you know, this is awesome. I mean, this newspaper thing is cool, doing illustrations. I mean, it was, it was awesome. I mean, I, I got a, a job pretty much doing what I was trained to do right out of school. Like, how often does that happen, right? <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, but it, but it wasn't, I don't know, I didn't say it wasn't fulfilling because I was definitely enjoying myself, but I felt like I wanted to see what was over on the other horizon, so to speak. So I um, first master's uh, in art education at University of Illinois in uh, 95, right? Okay. And then while I was there, I was taking graphic design classes and I fell in love with like, you know, communication design. So I ended up staying and, you know, it got into the MFA program for studio and f- focused on design. And so while there, I did a lot of research. This is around the same time that Scott McCloud's book, Understanding Comics, came out. So my, my thesis project ended up being like, you know, talking about how to improve uh, graphic storytelling through, you know, gra- you know, graphic design techniques, that kind of thing. And I ended up going back to Jackson. I mean, at the same time, I was, um, excuse me, let me back up. I was working full time as a senior designer at this like software company called Wolfram Research. They make this, uh, soft, this software called Mathematica. Okay. And um, they're based out of Champagne because it was started by some people that, you know, went to school at Champagne. So I ended up going back to Jackson State and pretty much like found, you know, I started their graphic design program pretty much, you know, kind of kickstarted it really hard. And, um, was there for four years, and then I ended up going back to the University of Illinois. <laughs> I was recruited back to teach there, and I was that's why I got tenure. And yeah, I ended up um, just kind of falling into education because it seemed like the corporate area was just not as challenging in some ways. But there are certain aspects of my training in problem solving that I just didn't see. Um, I just didn't, I didn't see them as useful, you know. And for education, it was just the. Uh, the furthering of, of, of um, studying art, it just seemed like it was a better fit for me. And I just kind of fell in love with teaching. And that's how I ended up <laughs> you know, being a professor of art and visual culture. So, John, I'm just wondering, um, you know, so like what, what sci-fi um, authors and so like maybe comic book writers um, uh, uh, perhaps so like uh, struck a chord with you most? Well, I will tell you my favorite science fiction show to start with is Doctor Who. Right? Awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was the first... Uh, yeah, when I was a kid, it was like I would rush home every day to see Tom Baker's Doctor Who, you know, and of course, you know, this became like a massive, yeah, people are, people are Trekkies and people can be, you know, Star Warsians, I don't even know if that's a thing, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, we called them Warsies. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'm a movie, like, I would think for real, you know, right. so um, I honestly like the first... Uh, Weird fiction that I read was Poe, you know, Edgar Allan Poe. Right. And, um, and then I was, uh, like, as a kid, you know, I just kind of like was always attracted to those, like, book macabre spaces. So, you know, um, writers like Stephen King and, you know, um, Clive Barker and folk like that, but also, like, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and, you know, um, oh, what's his name? Asimov, of course, you know, I was reading that kind of stuff early on. And, um, you know, uh, Vesters, like, <clears throat> The Star is My Destination. I forgot yeah. that, but I was like, oh, that's so good, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I think, I think my favorite science fiction writer, I kind of goes, I go back and forth between Octavia Butler and, and Philip K. Dick, you know, up in that area. And then, of course, uh, when I'm in college, I, I stumble across Cyberpunk and then, you know, Gibson and uh, those dudes. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love the cyberpunk stuff. I also like steampunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm really interested in, uh, well, I, you know, we can talk about that later, but I actually kind of created this, uh, co-created this, uh, this space called Cybertrap that is, you know, like Southern Fried Cyberpunk. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's um, one of the things that makes you a singular figure. Uh, you've done a lot 
I think in the realm of um, sort of Afrofuturism, you're mm-hmm. you're probably just like Black Kirby, mm-hmm. uh, which has really been sort of um, iconic in a way, and sort of an interpretation of Jack Kirby's work. But you're, you're closely associated with the Afrofuturism and uh, sort of modern art and this sort of intersection with comics and broader visual culture. Right. Can you tell a little bit about that journey? You know, that the artist. That's, that's been like just totally fascinating. I, when I was at, um, like, like a lot of people, I had never really heard the term Afrofuturism until you know someone just kind of said, "Hey, you're Afrofuturist." <laughs> you know, oh, am I really? Oh, that's interesting. Of course, like just a little bit of background. Right, the uh, the term was coined in what '93 by Mark Derry in his book Flame Wars, where he starts to talk about. The budding technoculture uh, and the cyber, and you know, and cyberpunk and things of that nature, and how it intersects with a particular type of uh, method that you know black people are using technology or depicting technology, right? Right. So, um, and that's from the background. But I didn't come across the term until like early two thousands. Like I was doing this project um, called Matters of the Fact, and it was a series of images that looked at uh, the intersections between blackness and technology and also how those start to um, become these manifestations of like modern day stereotypes. I'm really fascinated with stereotyping and how it relates to uh, constructions of the image, right? And so what I started doing was like creating, I was really I was really influenced by like Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto. And um, so I was kind of like remixing those ideas. Uh, she doesn't really talk about race but, you know, cyborgs who are black, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't they be seen differently? That kind of thing. That was kind of like some of the, uh, some of the impetus for doing it. And so I showed these works to my friend Dana Rush, who was teaching with me at University of Illinois at the time, and she's Africanist. And so she studies African history. And so she saw the work and she's like, oh, this looks, this looks really Afrofuturist. And I was like, wow, what is that? <laughs> so, so from then on, I just kind of became really interested in, uh, black speculative culture, you know, and that kind of started me on my journey, uh, thinking about um, how we intersect with uh, these different types of speculative cultures and how, like, black people or people in the diaspora use um, speculative narratives, whether they're auditory or visual or what have you, as kind of a liberation technology, you know, to kind of reset history or to like, or to critique it through, you know, alternative means of narrative, whether it be song, whether it be, you know, comics, what have you. And so, yeah, and, and one thing that's really interesting about Derry's work um, in his original uh, piece in Flame Wars, is, uh, which is called, um, uh, what is it called? Uh, uh, Black to the Future? Yeah, Black, yeah, Black to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> Black to the Future. And, um, he talks about the milestone media comics, right? Which at the time were brand new, right? Um, we're talking about the, the mid-90s, like early 90s, actually. So they had just come out. And so he kind of cites Icon and Rocket and, like, hardware in particular and then uh, Static, you know, as um, extensions of what he's looking at as kind of an Afrofuturist uh, aesthetic or, you know, cultural production space, right? So, yeah, so that's kind of like... Um, when we start. And so what ends up happening is I end up becoming aligned with people who are like Bill Campbell and Ronaldo Anderson and uh, yourself and <laughs> other folks who start to do work in like comics and speculative culture and horror and fantasy. And I just ended up 
uh, doing covers to people. Like, for instance, Yatasha Womack's book cover. I did that one when she started talking about it, when she started writing about Afrofuturism. Did the cover for Octavius Brood, uh, which is a collection of essays by um, on-the-ground activists uh, who, who write who write science fiction, who wrote science fiction pieces. It's by, uh, edited by Walida Amarisha and Adrian Marie Brown. And um, also, I did the cover for Mothership, which is a collection of uh, Afrofuture stories published by Bill Campbell's Rosarium Publishing, and also did the Sam Delaney book cover as well. So, you know, so what starts to happen is that um, the way that start to imagine what these technocultural spaces look like start to kind of like maybe direct a particular aesthetic around Afrofuturism. And then, of course, when Stacey and I created Black Kirby, it totally pushed that intersection even more because it starts to challenge like the idea of the author and it totally um, utilizes the digital as part of the aesthetic and also challenges things politically and yeah it's, so it's it's been kind of a ride since then so um, I don't know, so, so I ended up becoming aligned with these black speculative spaces and started doing uh, started co-creating um, black comic book festivals and also um, think tanks and colloquia like, you know, Planet Deep South and Astro Blackness and, you know, things of that nature. So um, studying it, I became like, you know, a scholar looking at black cultural stuff, but also produce it and also facilitate others to produce more. So that's where my, that's kind of like the, the triangle of, what I do in that space. Right. So, uh, yeah. I, I do creative curatorial um, commentary, uh, sort of like alignment there. Right. Uh, and I do want to say that, like, um, Natasha Womack's book is called Afrofuturism in the World of Black Science Fiction, mm-hmm. Sci-Fi, and Fantasy Culture, mm-hmm. um, which is the official title. So if you're looking for it, you're listening to this, and like, what, where, what was the book was that? And mm-hmm. Stacey Robinson, of course, is uh, your partner with Black Kirby. And I think you can get you can see images of Black Kirby through Society6. Right? Yes, yeah, Society6, and then our catalog is published by Cedar Grove Press. Um, the second edition of it is available. Cool. On Amazon, Cedar Grove. Mm-hmm. They just found Black Kirby um, <clears throat> in search of the, the Mother Box connection. I want to like, explore a little bit deeper because I, I know that that people, um, rightly so, are taken by um, the sort of imaginative imagery and like provocative uh, approaches that you take. But you know, you, you often talk about these things, and and you mentioned the really important points. So, so you speak about you know black imagination as a liberation technology, mm-hmm. and and I think that that's a thing that like academics might throw around and like understand, but. It, there's a whole world of uh, power and relationships there. And, and I know from some of your work and, and from some of the conversations now that you have a very sophisticated understanding of like the root of this world of liberation technology. So could you, you know, for a listener who's just being exposed to like all these concepts, say a little bit more about mm-hmm. you know, liberation technology idea and how it relates to cultural production. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, I'm working on this piece, um, with our friend uh, Clint Fluker. Um, it's called Forms of Future Past, where we're looking at uh, Black Kirby as kind of a prototype for um, various ways of thinking about technology. I think a lot of times people think of like, technology as just the devices that we utilize on a day-to-day basis, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, technology is also the systems that produce those things and language and religion and various types of making meaning that are essentially extensions of, of mankind, right? So 
start looking at some of McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan's ideas, but also look at like Beth Coleman's piece on race as technology. And also, um, there's a great book called uh, The Prosthetic Impulse uh, that talks about various ways that the technologies and systems um, can be reappropriated and you turn them into to tools, you know, the extensions of ourselves. And so um, when you start thinking about race as a technology and that, that starts to open up a lot of different things, right? Because, you know, a, a technology uh, is something that helps you, right? And so you can actually hack into, you know, how you are perceived. Say, for instance, passing, when, when a black person has the, the proper uh, amount of melanin or, or, or lack of melanin in their skin and they could actually pose as white, that's actually like hacking into a system, you know? I call it chitlin hacking when I went to the point. <laughs> okay, it was like, you know, this is a series of like tens of thousands of people after, uh, you know, emancipation just became white and they actually just moved among, uh, you know, quote unquote regular Americans, right? And so, you know, these are different ways that uh, that technology can, can assist you. But the other thing is that, um, you know, writing, for instance, you know, and something as simple as writing that a lot of people take for granted was totally denied and even illegal for slaves to learn, right, during uh, chattel slavery. Um, the thing about those types of spaces is that someone who is disenfranchised always sees the opening. They always understand that by not having access to a particular type of technology or system that they are being, you know, exploited. So, of course, the first thing that black people want to do is actually, you know, learn how to read, right? right. So this is where stuff like pit schools come from, right, where people would, like, dig pits and hide in secret, you know, to, to teach each other how to read and write, right? And um, these are different, these are, to me, are liberation technologies, too. It's something as simple as that. Um, but then once you start to utilize those tools to imagine other spaces, you know, one of our friends, um, Kevin Sip, talks about this, is that we weren't necessarily allowed to write science fiction or we weren't accepted in the science fiction community. So we took, you know, something that was God-given gift like music and turned that into a science fiction space, right? He says this all the time. I think it's brilliant, actually. So you look at things like Sweet, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, right? You know, mm -hmm. and then how that gets reappropriated in something like, you know, um, some of like Parliament Funkadelic's music. And then you also look at like current day folk like, you know, Janelle Monet and, um, and Terrence Nance who utilize media to talk about various states of blackness, right? What I love about this is that you're using narrative to hack into the stereotype, break it open, and own it. You know, saying use it for your own for your own devices. And I think that is uh, that's part of what we're talking about. You know, that through story and through media that you can not only imagine those spaces, but eventually they can become real. You know, anyway. So one of the things that's really intriguing about well, this idea of um, alternative means of narrative is that while Afrofuturism is really sort of defined by a 1970s and, and, and you know I, I always think about Afrofuturism and of course the second thought is Sun Ra mm -hmm. you know, as a sort of like seminal figure by casting it in, in the mode of like the, the oppressed sort of hacking the system and like these, these other modes of thinking and doing you can sort of see what is essentially like a, a kind of hacking ideology sort of rooted in people of color or, or really all oppressed people, their appropriation and remixing is really like a hacking of like the mainstream to empower them. 
And so that really opens up like a, a large swath of culture that you can sort of look for that process. And mm-hmm. you, you've noted like things like horror and, and you've talked about, um, you know, sort of African-American influences on that. And like that works into some of the work that you do. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about like that sort of that, that element? Because I think that's also one of the things that's really interesting and sort of emerged from some of the spaces that you help sort of create. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, let me follow up a little bit that because, you know, in... In, in looking at uh, some of the affordances of Afrofuturism and also some of the limitations you know, of it, um, I started to realize that a lot of people were using it as a catchphrase for all speculative culture. <laughs> right. There's five people of color, you know, black folk in general, you know. So, for instance, something like Kindred, you know, or like Daughters of the Dust or, um, you know, uh, Beloved starts to become Afrofuturist. And, uh, and I guess you could just say, you know, that because uh, the space deals with the past and the present simultaneously that it could be Afrofuturism, but there are also very specific, you know, literary tropes that start to kind of pop up. You know, look at something like, you know, Beloved. It's a very gothic horror story, you know, as it does not, like, you know, and so I became really fascinated with, um, I was looking at superheroes, actually, like uh, Cloak and Dagger and, like, Blade <laughs> and Dr. Voodoo, you know, these black characters that were seemingly... Um, <laughs> indexes for spaces their, their very bodies open spaces and I was like oh that's really interesting and so it's like think about like how trauma affects how we perceive things right and how those types of things type start to fix particular ideas and so I became really interested in like the connections between blackness and the gothic right and so I started having conversations with my friend Stanford Carpenter about this stuff and then you know and then I stumbled across Dr. Maisha Wester who had similar ideas and also uh Rebecca Means Coleman, you know, um, we're talking about just the idea that the black experience is a gothic experience, you know, that it can it is a haunted experience, you know, or can be perceived as such, right? Yeah. And so that's where a lot of my uh, notions about what I call the ethnogothic um, kind of come from, right? Where you look at, like, effective trauma and how it is exercised through various types of narratives that, you know, deal with the spiritual or the spectral or the or the or the, uh, the hauntology of blackness, so to speak, you know. And I definitely think, like, something like Kindred, for instance, couches itself in that type of language, right? Uh, even Octavia Butler herself called it, like, a dark fantasy or, or, or a dark, you know, surreal fantasy <laughs> work, you know, not necessarily science fiction, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so those are things I'm working on right now. So stuff like my... Book that I need to finish up, Blue Hand Mojo, you know, um, there's a piece I'm working on uh, with a bunch of other people called Box of Bones that is essentially that, where the main character is a graduate student um, at uh, Berkeley who is studying Afrofuturism, excuse me, um, Afro-Americans, uh, Afro-American history and like narrative. And so she comes across this fictitious box, you know, um, in her studies and it always seems to be marked with like racial trauma and violence, right? And so slowly but surely she realizes that this mystical box is is not a myth at all, it's actually real. And so it's a way to talk about, you know, issues around slavery and discrimination that still haunt our country today, you know? Yeah. As specters, you know. I think it's always interesting that people refer to slavery as a specter. You know, I think that's very intentional, you know. Um, anyway, so those are things that I think have become offshoot, or part of what's become offshoots of my interest in black speculative culture and Afrofuturism is these other alternative spaces like 
And I was talking to my friend uh, Clint about this the other day. Uh, he's working on his uh, dissertation about a lot of this work. And so we're kind of coming up with this notion that, you know, race is such a powerful technology or lens that it distorts uh, reality. You know, it actually like totally like distorts. It's, it's, it becomes like this really powerful epistemology when you apply it to something like science fiction, right? Yeah, anyway. So one of the things that's really interesting there is the sort of way of rethinking the, the sort of Western experience Mm-hmm. Really, like, you know, people of color, the diaspora, um, but that also intersects with the sort of contemporary debates about the future, right? At, at one of the one of the things that makes contemporary debates about race so pivotal isn't simply that the past is at stake; it's also about what future future activities will happen. Right. It's done work there too, sort of like taking what I think many people would understand to be this sort of traditional. Afrofuturist emphasis, which is sort of like a far future where people are reimagined mm-hmm. and technology is manipulating them. So, like project like Kid Code. So, can you talk yeah. a little bit about something like that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Kid Code was the result of um, a, a road trip. <laughs> so, so I, I, I love time travel stories, right? So, actually, he's really influenced by Doctor Who. He even has a long scarf. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's like this, this long scarf that is a that is a uh, a computer. Actually, he hasn't used it yet, but it's actually a living computer. Um, so anyway, so Stacy and I were were driving to uh, Columbus, Ohio, for like a comic book convention, and I told him about this some of these ideas I had about a hip hop inspired time travel kind of superhero or, or character. And so what we started doing, you know, so I talked about the mythology is like, you know, the idea of speaking things into existence, the tech, you know, the technology of Nomo or the, or the extension of, of Nomo, which is a uh, Afro um, pan-Africanist idea around uh, speaking things into existence. Right. So you, you, you basically make things manifest literally by speaking them. You know, I think that's extremely powerful. And so if you think about you know, the traditional uh, Judeo-Christian belief structures around creation of the universe, you know, that's, so well, God was an MC. <laughs> so we actually start thinking about like how we intersected various creation mythos with hip hop culture. And so, um, you know, the, the original universe is like remixed by these evil DJs. And so, you know, God's right hand man, father time has to create these, emissaries that time travel through this giant like chronologically oriented quilt that's spun by these four DJs called the Unfatable Four. And so the idea is that they have to go and find shards of, voice, of God's voice. Because what happens is they sample God's voice and they remix it. And by doing so they remix the universe. And so they're trying to reset it or at least get closer to the original mix. You know, because this dark mix was never supposed to exist. All this pain and suffering was never supposed to be here. So yeah, and so the main villain is called the power, right? So, we, <laughs> which they must fight, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, those are different tropes. So it's like fantasy. There's a lot of like, uh, it's, it's really science. It's really uh, uh, science fiction and fantasy, or you know, it has that kind of. It's very you know space opera, but also adventure. And you know, he's not a superhero. Um, but he kind of has some of the swagger of like a superhero kind of character. And you know, so that was one particular project that we're working on right now with the first 40, this is like the first graphic novella. It's like 40 pages. It's out right now. I'm trying to finish up the rest. But um, I also started thinking about 
you know, other future spaces that haven't been dealt with uh, as much. And so I had the honor of um, being invited by uh, Harry Jenkins to speak on a panel at this uh, cyberpunk celebration. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was, I could see a link to it. It was pretty cool. So what happens is, and this is actually where some of the ideas around, like, you know, Planet Deep South and, you know, other things start popping off because, you know, the, the question was, how has cyberpunk affected people from various backgrounds? So, so it's myself, like Nalo Hopkinson, Alex Rivera, um, people like that who are influenced, obviously, by cyberpunk in some way. So he was looking at how Black Kirby could be an extension of cyberpunk, right? But I started thinking about, well, what is black cyberpunk? Because, you know, people like um, Malaguna Ajitari and uh, Milton Davis, they have this whole, like, cyberpunk construction, right? Which yeah. is pretty much like, you know, black cyberpunk, right? And so um, I thought that was awesome. I love that kind of recontextualization of a genre like that. And because um, they also do stuff like, you know, steampunk, you know, by, using, by taking out the punk aspect, which is even though maybe wrongfully so, codified as a, as a more white space, right? right. Um, yeah. And it's something that's obviously coming from an American, you know, musical tradition like funk. And then that becomes a really interesting, uh, you know, alternative space. But I started thinking like, wow, you know, I don't see a lot of narratives about the poor South, you know, like black urban South, you know? <laughs> and so uh, my friend Regina Bradley does a lot of work on the trap, like original trap music, which is pretty much like, you know, a southern ghettoized, like violent, hypersexualized drug space, you know, that's has a musical it has a musical component as well. So I was like, well, you know, trap music actually is kind of a really like inversion of like a punk kind of space, right? Yeah. So so that's where I started thinking about well what about what what would a cyber trap look like? Because the idea of the trap is just you can't get out of it. Right. You're too poor you know, you're going to, you're going to live and die in that space, right? So imagine we have, we start doing a world building exercise where we imagine like a post cataclysmic space where basically this massive hurricane has destroyed, you know, the, the whole Southern space. And so everyone moves deeper into spaces like, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, for instance, which is what we use as a, as a staging ground for this. So Florida is pretty much decimated. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. That- and every post-apocalyptic thing that will happen, it's a subtle message. I'm sorry, man. It's like, you know, it's probably, you know, but most of the coast is like jacked up. But this is actually after a water war, too. So there's this huge war, uh, civil war between like, you know, east and west that is a war, right? And so um, the thing that actually stops it from happening is like, like total, total chaos is someone actually creates a netite that can, um, that helps in the production of water, right? Like just straight up, like creating it or refurbishing like molecules to make water, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of the characters that we're dealing with in these this narrative uh, are like uh, they're they're veterans of this, this these water wars, right? Okay. Yeah, and so they end up in these you know these southern spaces, and some of them end up in uh, you know the informal economy because what happens is the same technology that's used to make this water is actually reappropriated and it comes up as this uh, this drug called hack that actually can hack into the human nervous system and become any type of drug that it needs to be and it's delivered by these you know usually biodegradable nanobots that you inhale right it's called hack and so 
uh, in this space, you know, the main character, uh, he is um, a distributor of this drug, but essentially what he is is a computer programmer. So he's distributing this code, which is what powers these nanobots to deliver this cyber drug. So, and it's like all the rage, you know, and, and it's like it takes over the whole southern space and, you know, there's a whole economy that pops up around it. And so we've been doing like these really interesting world building exercises and stories in this cyber trap space. And so our overarching uh, title for everything is called um, is called uh, Cell Therapy, which is named after the uh, the Goody Mob song. And so, yeah, so Cell Therapy is kind of like our Sin City. So, yeah. So we're doing like, you know, comics and illustrated fiction that happen in this space. But at the same time, I was also thinking about other types of, you know, uh, technologies. So I came up with this notion of what I call conjure punk. So it's like, which I think Mala Hopkinson would be probably like the, the queen mother of, right? This idea of like hoodoo as a type of, you know, folk technology and how it speaks to a cyber technology, right? So I created like characters that are existing in that space too. So there's a character I created called um, the Bokor Assassin, who basically is like equally as adept at cyber, cyber technology as he is at like traditional folk technologies, right? So anyway... Yeah, so those are things I'm kind of playing around with, looking at how, when you look at, like, cultural production from various ethnic backgrounds or racialized backgrounds, and when you apply it to these, uh, these other spaces, you, you come up with some really interesting uh, mutations, so to speak. You know, that's kind of like, so that's some of the next things that I want to do. So um, I was fortunate enough to get a fellowship to Harvard to uh, uh, the Nasir Jones Fellowship, which is connected to the Hutchins Center, and um, it's a hip-hop fellowship. And so my main project while I'm there in the next spring is to work on a story that takes place in the cyber trap space. So is the cyber trap, um, is anything out based on the cyber trap, or is it something like you Very soon, very soon, actually. Uh, Regina is working on a couple of stories. Uh, I think Obsidian might be publishing one. They're running a special right. a special uh, journal uh, where a lot of our colleagues actually uh, have things that are coming out in that uh, special edition of the Black Speculum Space Right. And um, yeah, they actually, I actually even have a, um, a five page uh, visual essay that kind of talks about the ethnographic, for instance. But Regina's doing like a cyber trap story that we kind of helped, helped her kind of put together. So, and I think that she's going to have one in this collection of short stories that she's doing now called Boondock Collage. You know, so those will be some of the first inklings of those stories. So, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. So, your one of your real sort of processes is, is that is one a, is a creative process, but it's also a kind of institutionalization process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that uh, the very first time we met, it was at the Black Science Black Superhero Festival at the Schromberg Center yeah. in New York. Right, that's right. Um, but you've sort of gone on and and created a series of other sort of like engagement. You mentioned them earlier, but I think people would be really interested in you know, what's the sort of goal of those things and like, you know, what sort of happens at those at those events and like, what's the next one? I think is probably the biggest question. Okay. Um, as far as like, well, okay. So I was really influenced by uh, some of the earlier black cons like um, 
you know, the East Coast Black Age Economist Convention, which is right, of course, yeah. but, and you know, Tertero Anli's work as not only like a distributor of black content and comics, but also um, creating a black convention in Chicago and you know, spaces like OnyxCon, was created by Joseph Wheeler, where they're actually actively talking about um, creating spaces where vendors who make these these narratives uh, can, can empower themselves financially, right? But also teach people that they're all alternative views of like these not only superhero spaces but just all kinds of graphic narratives that are connected to various modes of blackness you know and so i became really fascinated with that and you know um it popped the 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 um it kind of uh, it was fortunate that you know black kirby was uh was still like showing and jonathan gales uh was also so touring his uh his first film um white scripts black superman which deals with like uh, black identity and masculinity in comics, uh, particular superhero comics from like the you know late '60s into the mid '70s, and um, so uh, you know Jonathan and Jerry Craft, who was a wonderful cartoonist, and also Deirdre Holman and myself came up with this idea to kind of pool our resources. We 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 all wanted to do something around comics. We're like, well, let's just do it at the same time, and so that's how the festival was born in at the Schomburg Center, and. Uh, and so since then, I think we're, next year will be our fifth year. Um, it's grown exponentially. And so one of the main things with the show, not only that black people are really into this stuff, but we have a very diverse uh, representation of these spaces, right? Right. And so then what happens is uh, in the summers, uh, I do a um, teacher seminar in the MFA program at CCA in comics. It's California College of the Arts in San Francisco. And so I was fortunate enough to meet uh, Aaron Grizel, who's the president of the uh, MLK Foundation in uh, North California. And they do a massive uh, MLK celebration, actually, the same weekend that we do the, the thing in the Schomburg. So, so basically what starts to happen is we, we got the idea of like, hey, not only do we institutionalize this, but let's do a massive celebration with bi-coastal two events that kind of happen right after each other on this Sony MLK weekend. And um, wow. yeah, so that's that's what we've been doing for the last few years. So uh, that's Astro Blackness. No, Astro Blackness is a, is more of an academic think tank. That's actually uh, the, the 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 one on the west on the west coast is called the Black Comics Arts Festival. Okay. And, it happens that it happens the same weekend as the Schomburg event. Okay. Last year, um, we had about four thousand people at the BCAF and six thousand at the Schomburg. You know, so yeah, it's a lot of people, and so I think that uh, you know it's it's growing. And and when you look at like the amount of content that's being generated, you know, it's definitely uh, a massive audience is out there. You know, um, yeah, I'm very excited about it. So. Then, of course, uh, I started to, um, to talk to Frederick Aldama and Ricardo Padilla. Ricardo Padilla actually created the Latino Comic Expo, which is on the West Coast. Um, I met his son at the first Schomburg piece, and he reached out to me. Uh, he wanted to collaborate on something. So between myself and Ricardo and Frederick, uh, who was a professor at Ohio State University, we created the first black and brown uh, comic book convention is called SoulCon. It happens that the first one happened in October. Second will be coming up on October first, October fourteenth, and it's at the Ohio State University in tandem with the uh, Crossroads Comics Celebration that they do. So it's the same weekend, and so we have this big like comics festival, multi-faceted, that's happening at OSU. You know, so the second one is going to be October fourteenth. <laughs> so yeah, Astro Blackness is actually something that I conceived with. Uh, 
I was phenomenal uh, at Loyola Marymount University, and um, the idea was to kind of create a accessible space for people who are very interested in different ideas around, you know, black scholarship and the speculative oh. and performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's what, and that's actually a spinoff of that was, of course, Planet Deep South. That was a uh, kind of a sister uh, event. So. Yeah. And, and your plan is to continue with acting like this when it's outcome events. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. We just have to uh, figure out, you know, just the logistics of things. Um, right. right now, we're just trying to figure, uh, figure out how to delegate a lot more and, um, you know, uh, those types of things. Right. Ian, did you have a question? Yeah, I had a quick one. You, you mentioned um, an event called the uh, Crossroads Festival. I'm just wondering... Uh, Crossroads, is that kind of like uh, inspired, you know, the title is inspired by Robert Johnson's blues song, The Crossroads? Or? Um, you know, I know. I think I think what it is, it's uh, Columbus, Ohio is becoming like, you know, kind of a, a big comics town. And they're, right. they're thinking about it, you know, as like kind of a gateway to the north kind of thing. I think that's kind of like where where, where they got the idea from. You know, so, uh, but yeah, it's called Crossroads. Uh, Columbus Crossroads Comics, so it's, it's called CXC. It's, it's the second year, and it basically is put on by the the University, of, excuse me, the um, Ohio State University, uh, Billy Ireland uh, Comics uh, Library. Okay. Yeah, and um, yep. So that that's actually happening again, uh, super soon. Cool. So as a as a creator, of course, Black Kirby, as you mentioned before, is uh, very much inspired by Jack Kirby. So the Silver Age comic works, what we imagine through the African-American experience. And that's something that people, I really do recommend that people check it out. Um, but your your latest work and the one that is coming out very soon is a graphic interpretation of a David Butler's The Kindred. And I think actually, aren't you scheduled to sort of debut that at San Diego Comic Con? Um, well, there's a uh, there's going to be a panel discussion about it. So there'll be people, yeah, so I'm sure we'll be talking about process and have some images from it. Uh, I think the first time that someone will uh, see at least the black and white version is um, at the American Library Association. Uh, the the, the uh, advanced readers copies will be available there. Um, oh, the AI meeting this coming week. Yes. Oh, it's in Orlando, actually. Yep, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so they'll have uh, they'll have the the advanced readers copies there of the graphic novel. Uh, the adaptation by Damian Duffy and uh, the uh, illustration by myself. You know, it's a 240-page full-color graphic novel. Um, that is a uh, yeah. That's, I think it's I think it's I think it's kind of awesome. <laughs> you know? um, ironically, uh, I just sent the final pages to my editor like five minutes before we did this uh, show. <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, like. I was pushing it. I was like, okay, that's going to be fine. <laughs> uh, what would you say was the, the greatest challenge in adapting the iconic work? Because, you know, for, I'm sure most of the people who are going to be listening to Sci-Fi Plus Dot, you know, Sci-Fi Plus Dot, Sci-Fi Plus Now, Sci-Fi Now, um, are going to know who Octavia Butler is. But for the odd person who might just be born, <laughs> story, could you sort of like lay it out a little bit? And lay out the story a little bit, you mean? Uh, sure. Uh, so basically, um, the, the book itself was written in 1979. It takes place in 76, though. And she chooses the 
bicentennial of our country to um, have a really interesting, you know, metaphysical just uh, discussion about race. And so she was really influenced by some of her classmates and other people who would say things like, just talking about the culpability of black people and their own enslavement and what they would do if they were alive then, and, you know, that kind of thing, right? And so what ends up happening is um, there's this woman, her name is Dana Franklin, Dana for short, who's married to this uh, white man named Kevin Franklin, and they're both writers, and they live in Southern California. They're moving to a house in Southern California. And um, in the middle of unpacking boxes, Dana inexplic- inexplicably is catapulted through time and space to a riverbank in the middle of a plantation in Maryland. And so she sees this little red-haired white kid drowning in a river, and she instinctively swims out to save him. And then as uh, she does this, um, his mother comes out, attacks her, and says, oh, get away from her, you know, this, and then that kind of thing. And then she turns around, and his father has a gun in her face. And all of a sudden, she pops back to 1976, covered in mud and water on the other side of the, of the room. And her husband is like, okay, what just happened? <laughs> so, so anyway, so this happens many times over the course of the story. And little by little, she starts to realize that this kid who she always ends up saving uh, is her like probably her great, great, great grandfather, right? Uh, and there's Rufus Whalen. And so the entire story is about survival and about like, you know, Again, that haunted the haunted realities of slavery and uh, in our country, and also these really really complex relationships that happen. And it was Octavia Butler's challenge uh, uh, to people to really think a lot more critically about uh, the over sometimes the oversimplification of how slavery functioned as a system mm-hmm. in our country, you know, and 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 also the uh, the intimacies that kind of like spin off of uh, such a really, really complex and unfortunate uh, system, right? right? So she's using uh, science fiction or dark fantasy, whatever you want to call it, uh, to talk about these various levels of complicity and dependence and, um, you know, affect, you know, in, the, in this in this really weird um, uh, society, you know? So yeah, anyway, so that's, that's Kindred. And... Uh, yeah, so it basically takes place between 1976 and various times in the 1800s. Wow. So, yeah. Um, I think many people will recognize Octavia Butler's as, at some level, I think some people would argue she was the science fiction writer that first broke through to become um, a kind of mainstream literature figure. Um, a complicated narrative about science fiction to be on the margins versus it being part of like you know, sort of canonical um, legitimate literature but um, she was a recipient of the MacArthur grant uh, and she produced many works but no question that the Kendra is I think arguably by far the most most famous and most well known it's the most well known I think in some ways it's the most accessible because it's not it's a complete narrative that's not part of she has, sub, she has several series right that she's successful yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, I think you're right about that at that point. And so the decision to, uh, to adapt it to a graphic narrative, you know, we, we often say this about uh, movies that are made from comic books. It's really hard to make a, a good 
movie from a comic book, people think, well, it must be simple, but it's actually quite difficult. Yes. And I'm actually interpreting a David Butler, it would be a difficult a difficult preposition. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced with, with this decision to adapt this? Mm. You and your partner, Damien Duffy. Yeah, but Damien, who is amazing. He actually did the lettering, too, on the project. And oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, actually, a lot of people don't realize it, but he's a very talented uh, letterer. Um, like he's, yeah, he, he really takes it, he, he elevates it to an art form. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is an art form, but he, he really has these, uh, uh, very, uh, particular notions about it, which I find is awesome. Yeah. He's, a, he's a great collaborator. We've been working together for over a decade on various projects, both, um, you know, creative and academic. Um, he just finishes, uh, PhD in a library and information science from the University of Illinois. Very proud of him. And, yeah. So, you know, just Dr. Damien Duffy. Um, so, yeah, I think one of the most difficult things, uh, just talking to him about it, is like, the first thing was like, do you set it in the present or do you keep it in the past, right, in the 1970s? And so we decided that because of um, her initial ideas around it, that the 70s would be a lot more potent space to talk about these things, but it still resonates. It doesn't necessarily have to be now for it to make sense to us, right? Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. The other thing was um, uh, the story itself is longer than the page count of the graphic novel. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the graphic novel is only like 200, it's 237 pages of narrative, right? So, yeah, and I forget how long the original novel is, but it's probably so about figure, a thousand pages. Hmm? Probably around about a thousand pages, I should imagine. Is it? it? No. Uh, I don't think it's that long, but it's, it's, not, it's not that long. It's, no, it's, it's, not, not, it's not that long. Around about 600, it's, you go? No, it's, uh, it's, it, hold up. <laughs> All this debating. <laughs> <laughs> How long? It's, it's about 5,000, please. You can murder someone with it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tome. Let's see, Kendrick is, yeah, it's 306 pages. So, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, yeah, so we're short. <laughs> so they wanted to do it in 240. And so one of the first things is okay. Well, what do you cut out? <laughs> and so it's like, how do you, how do you, how do you cut out anything? <laughs> you know. Mm. So that's the, that's the hardest piece. Yeah, if it was Lord of the Rings, stuff. it'd be easy. Just cut out the bit where the bump into the tree guy. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, so that's the hardest piece. Is like you know trying to trying to figure out how to show different time zones, how to keep the tone of the. Of the story, um, yeah, because it's very dark. It's a very dark story, and the style I use on it is very. I mean, my style in general is pretty cartoony, you know. So I tell it, so my my hand is is very uh, very much like a caricature artist. So that's um, I think the, the the juxtaposition of a, of a lighter style with the heaviness of the book I think works for it. I think um, the other challenge is. You know, adapting a massive book while you're working on your dissertation and teaching, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course, yeah. So it's a it's a it's a lot of work, and um, you know, I'm, I have all of the artwork, so that included like all the breakdowns, all the pencils, all the inks, and most of the color. I mean, all of actually all the rendering. I uh, what happened was when I was working on the uh, advanced readers copy, uh, I caught a um, a pinch nerve. Oh wow! Yeah, it's nerve bundle between my shoulder blade and my neck, which is it was excruciating. It was just because of the motion of like laying out that many pages that quickly, just kind of broke my back. So 
Um, I actually uh, had to, for the first time in my career, hire assistants to do my flat works for like the last, you know, for a lot of the book. And um, it, cha- it changed the way that I thought about making the work, you know. Um, so now, so you know, I'm not, I'm not going to ever work on a, a project ever without assistance on the uh, the basic flat work for me <laughs> to color. <laughs> yeah, so you'll see a lot more delegation in my. <laughs> yeah, because it, it was just too. It was really, really difficult. Uh, right. You know, really difficult. And the other thing was, um, I also think about ergonomically because I don't have a Cintiq right now or a Wacom tablet. Uh, digitally inking that many pages is actually also not uh, the best thing for you to do so I actually ended up going back to doing the book by hand so I actually drew uh, everything by hand so there's like a stack of um, over 700 pages of kindred drawings you know pages of you know like uh, panel drawings in sharpie so yeah the entire most of the book is inked in sharpie and you know colored do oh wow yeah that's amazing um and that's from what press Abrams Comic Arts uh, is the press. Uh, really, really awesome uh, publisher, and have been extremely gracious to us. And um, you know, I'm hoping I, I, I'm hoping that they love the book. And uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we would want to change on it. Uh, but you know, the book is actually due to the to publisher like Monday. So we're actually, like I said, it's uh, it's funny that this is you know this interview is happening like right. Now, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's really that's really great. I'm I'm sure it will be uh, something that will attract a lot of attention just because of the iconic nature of the work and because some of your own work and, and other fields. And that brings me to a, a really important question. You're such a, a sci-fi geek. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been approached to do anything for any of the publishers, like a Marvel or a DC? Not as, as of yet. I mean, I think, uh, um, I mean, if, if someone did, if they did, I would, I would probably, I would love to work on something with them, I guess. But, you know, no, it's, uh, I think, I think I've always been like more of a fringe character. Like, you know, we have different levels of notoriety in different fields. Like, right. as, as a scholar, I'm pretty well known, you know, the right. like my, like my work is, uh, graces the cover of a lot of really cool books. And, you know, I think that people would know what I do in the academy, but, you know, the comic book space, mm-hmm. you know, the industry is a very different industry. Um, I think that, uh, a book of this, Caliber will probably uh, increase increase that profile in the industry a little bit more, but um, you know, um, yeah, I, I really I really like working on independent projects though. So I would love to if they wanted me to, to draw, you know, Constantine or like you know Brother Voodoo, you know, I would I would definitely love to do that, <laughs> you know, respectively. But, what about Doctor Who? Yeah, but I'm really focused on like my own properties. Uh, there's uh, a couple of projects that I'm working on with Stacy that uh, you know for for other bigger publishers too. We work on a project with Tony Medina called um, I Am Alfonso Jones, which is a supernatural political. I would say like a, it's a supernatural uh, Black Lives Matter story. You know, it's pretty okay. much pretty much what it is. So we're Stacy's actually already working on the pages for that, and I'm doing the inks and finishes, and yeah. It's from Lee and Low books. That's one of my next next things. So, wow. So I think Ian wanted to know: Would you do Doctor Who if Titan Titan is the company that does Doctor Who? Company? You know, I think so because I've seen some great Doctor Who adaptations, and I've seen some really bad ones too. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
Maybe, you know. <laughs> Maybe so. Um, I love the character, so I, I think I'd do a good who, you know. Yeah. <laughs> How, how, do you, how, do you just, how do you just in Doctor Who's, uh, which one would you like to have a crack at? Because obviously, we've, we, you know, everyone of uh, any particular generation has grown up with their Doctor, like mine was Tom Baker. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. You know, about there's been so many great Tom Baker uh, stories. Um, hmm. That's a good question. Because uh, I've liked a lot of the newer ones too. Yeah. Right, yeah. Mm. It's true. You know, there's, there's not enough stories about the Chris Evans. was it, Ninth Doctor? The Chris Evans. Right. Yeah, yeah. But also, I love the fact that um, uh, Paul Morgan's Doctor, the Eighth Doctor, is getting a lot more play because I thought he had a lot of potential. And I hate that, you know, people didn't, when they did that Fox pilot, right. uh, they didn't understand what Doctor Who was. I was like so excited. I was in grad school. Right, yeah. And, uh, yeah. I watched that and I was like yeah I taped it actually and then my, my you know uh, I actually recorded it they had these things called VHS tapes then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was hilarious as my, my my roommate at the time taped over with a, an episode a couple episodes of Dukes of Hazard. I was so pissed. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, I, I could have like, uh, but eventually they put it out on DVD. So and I had that. So that's cool. But Paul McGann's Doctor could be cool to do something with. And I like I like Mets. I mean, I don't know. I like a lot of the newer Doctors too. Um, yeah. Patrick Troughton has some really cool ones because you know he was crotchety in a particular way, and I liked like some of his villains, like the Cyberman and like the Yeti. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. All of them have their. Um, the, the doctor that I know the least about is Sylvester McCoy's doctor. I don't know, which I think is the... Mm, he's all right. Yeah, number seven was all right. I mean, his, his last season was probably his best season. Interesting. As a doctor. Yeah, I, heard, um, I mean, I heard he was kind of mean and, and kind of... Uh, it was dark. I think it was. I think it was dark. Yeah. He yeah. was very manipulative. He, you know, yeah. he was very manipulative. Was the um, was was the seventh Doctor? Yeah. You know? So it was an interesting take on the Doctor because he did play him as uh, uh, knowing things that other people that know but not sharing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of the story content, I think, really sort of, like, played on tensions around Margaret Thatcher's government, right? Like, there's a little tension in British society, and, like, you go see it, sort of playing itself out. And yeah, like and, you know, the, you know, so, like, the same shit, different day now with the, with the current Tory government. Yeah, correct. You know? yeah. Um, well, in fact, that was one of the things when the doctor came back, that uh, the Eggleston doctor... Um, was was accused in the news. Now we're off topic. Was accused in the news of being like any any government, right? Any totally yeah. Mm -hmm. Um Yeah, I've done some research on that, <laughs> and actually, so yeah, it's it's really interesting. Okay, well, here's uh, a here's a fun follow up question for you guys. Uh, you know, just just because I want to bring this up because. Um, Prior to Matt Smith, we almost had a Bangat Doctor Who. We very very nearly had Patterson Joseph. He was sort of like the bookie's favourite until Matt Smith overtook him and, and eventually got the role. Um, mm -hmm. So um, just just throw this out there. Um, out of the current slew of uh, British black actors we've got, um, who do you think would make a good Doctor Who if if, if, if we could have a black actor as a next Doctor? Oh, wow. Oh, that is so tough. Because <laughs> you know, everybody's like, Idris Elba. And I was like, Idris Elba can't play everybody. Yeah, that's true. What I was for, I mean, you know. Yeah. Maybe. But you know, there's a guy, I don't know his name, but he played on... And the reason I think of him, because he looks... He, he would be a different a different look for the Doctor. But mm -hmm. he's a, a British actor. He was in the Dracula series in the U.S. 
He's <laughs> in um, Zoo. James, I was the name of American Television right now. Mm-hmm. Um, ah, what's his name? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I know who you're talking about. I don't know his name. <laughs> Huh? I know who you're talking about, but I don't know his name, but he's a yeah, really right, big yeah. Burnley guy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's a big Burnley guy, right? And the Dodgers never really a big Burnley guy. He's a really kind of guy. That is true. Yeah, you don't see a lot of, yeah, he's like usually kind of a, you know. Yeah, and so I'm like, what well, that's true. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. As soon as you get to Burnley, it's really kind of, but he's little, it's kind of like spark pluggy is, uh, right. is uh, Trouton. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I will say I will say that I really enjoyed Peter Davison's Doctor. You know, yeah, yeah, because um, he had the unfortunate occurrence of following Tom Baker, which he shouldered with a lot of dignity, mm-hmm. and and um, I actually but, enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, yeah, I thought he was great. I thought I think what about him is that he was he was um, he was he was less like to be in the, the forefront. He was more of, he was more of a facilitator, you know, and that was his style of solving problems. And he would actually kind of take the back seat. He didn't mind taking the back seat. And also, I love the fact that um, he at the time was the youngest actor to play the doctor, mm-hmm. and he played him as an old man. You know, I really liked that. Like his 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 mannerisms and the way that he actually like dealt with things. He actually kind of came across as an old man, you know, but, but with a young face, which I really liked, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, Peter Davison is one of my favorite doctors, actually. Yeah, he has a, what, how do you feel about um, Peter Spaldi as a doctor? I like Capaldi. I think he had. I think he has the unfortunate... Uh, he doesn't have really great stories, though. You know, I think, I think that they are in a space right now where... Uh, What's the, what's the showrunner's name again? Uh, Stephen Moffat. Stephen Moffat. I think Moffat has actually like kind of jumped a shark a little bit. I think he, he's, his ideas around the character have been uh, close to being done. You know, so as far as like the Doctor is deity, you know, these types of ideas, you know, because you see things, I mean, you know, like the silence is pretty much the, you know, silence is the weeping angels kind of sort of, you know, so, <laughs> you know that kind of thing where it's like, oh, let's try this thing again. We're going to remix this idea. You know, and I was very excited about him taking over at first, but and he's still. I mean, don't get me wrong, Moffat is a wonderful writer, but I think, um, yeah, I think it's time to try some new ideas. And then, like some of Capaldi's stories, uh, were just kind of not well executed. You know, I've got. Um, I'm going to say this, this is going to sound a bit harsh, but I've always felt that Moffat is a far superior writer than he is a TV producer. Um, yeah, and the reason I, I the reason I say that is because if you look at the stories he did when when Russell T Davis was in charge, the stories that he did for Doctor Who when Russell D, T Davis were in charge were absolutely awesome. But when he took over as showrunner, um, his writing seemed to seemed to sort of like start to spiral yeah. downward a little bit. You know, he, right. he wasn't well, putting out the same comedy stories. Yeah. Well, they've already announced the the new new showrunner. Um, have they? Yeah, it's, they Chris, have. it's Chris Chibnall. Yeah, yeah he, the guy he, did. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Church Street. I think he did. Yeah. Street. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. I know the work. You know. Yeah. So, um, so I'm sure. I'm like, also excited again that we have like another uh, campaign of color. Uh, Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm excited about that because uh, I, I personally think that Martha Jones got shafted. You know, yes. I, I, I wanted Martha Jones to go on for two seasons, but my, that might be my huge crush on her. Oh, <laughs> you know? you too? Yeah, I've got a huge, massive crush on I Martha Jones. Like, yes, yeah, she's, she's one of my ex-wives from another dimension. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. Seriously, when I was in London, I actually had a chance to see... Uh, 
what was it? It was Doctor Who had a um, an exhibition at I forgot where it was. Cardiff. Actually, I, I have to be. I happened to be in the city because I was speaking at the London College of Communications and um, with my friend Eric. And uh, this is right after I had tenure, and I want to say like after I got tenure and um, I was on sabbatical. And uh, yeah, I was just so hoping to bump into her. So bad. Well, I hope my wife's not going to hear this. Right? So, do you, do you think she'd be <laughs> she good? Knows. She knows. Do you think right. she'd be good She-Hulk? Because uh, apparently she's uh, one of the actresses that is in contention to play She-Hulk in Netflix series. I saw that. I saw that. Um, yeah, why not? I mean, you know, um, I'm assuming they're going to do some uh, some CGI stuff when she turns into the She-Hulk. You know, uh, why not? You know, I like the fact that you know she's kind of distancing herself from. You know, the doctor, as is Billy Piper, another one of my favorites. I like Billy Piper. As a, she, was a, I like she, she was a great companion. But I've been loving her on um, Penny Dreadful. Which oh, is, awesome. I, just, I love that show. I just see what you say now. I love Penny Dreadful. It's one of my I favorite it's, shows. I think it's a great show. It's just really well done. I mean, it's inspired me. I'm working on it. I have an idea for like a um, Victorian era um, kind of like a steam, steampunk, steampunk story, you know, that I want to okay. yeah. Cheap thrill, do 50 pages of grey. Alright. Well, that was just bad. That was just a really bad joke, sorry. That was, that was best stuff, yeah, yeah. Do 50 pages. In black and white. I'm like, yeah, do black and white. I said, like, oh no, he's white, yeah. making a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but you're it's right. English humour. <laughs> no, it's not, not the English humour. The English humour is actually very, very sarcastic. I, I've just got a very corny sense of humour. You said very Cardiff. <laughs> No, I just said corny. Oh, corny. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, John, I think um, we, we've taken up enough of your time, and it's been an honor to talk to you. Oh, man, it's always a pleasure, bro. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a big fan of you, too, so. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, if, if, if you want to follow up with you on online, where can they find you online. It's actually a lot more difficult than you would you would think <laughs> because I don't have a website. Um, I've oh, okay. never needed one. That's the thing. I've never needed a website. So it's like for like doing freelance work. So the best place to find a bunch of I, you know honestly probably twi- uh, Twitter. You know, I, yeah, which is J I Jennings. J I my middle name is Ira. So J I Jennings. Uh, well, I Twitter. found your I found your page at the University of Buffalo because I did a quick search before before mm-hmm. we, we started this, 
Yeah. Um, that was so, a it was an interview that they did with me um, mm-hmm. uh, a few years back. It was called The Soul of Black Comics. Well, that's that's a one, place. Yeah. But also there's a Tumblr page. It's called CJ Adventures. CJ Adventures on Tumblr. Yeah. John J. Jennings on Twitter. J.I. Jennings. J.I. Jennings. <laughs> J.I. Jennings on Twitter. Sorry. Um, and of course, look for The Kindred to be coming up um, this fall. Well, yeah, it's uh, slated to come out in January, but it's probably going to be... I can see it coming out earlier, probably. But yeah, it'll be, it's slated for January. But look for that. I'm sure I'm sure you'll, you'll hear a lot about that. That's going to be an exciting thing. And of course, uh, Black Kirby is available through Society6. I think Kid Code is available now as well. Yeah, through Indie Planet and also Rosarium Publishing. Um, right. And, and, and Blue Hand Mojo. Is and awesome. Blue Hand Mojo is available now as well. Yeah, the first half of it, yes. I'm going to finish it up. So, yeah, um, that's i got to finish that like now. <laughs> very, very quick one before we go. Represent the world of John Jay. So, please, please do check them out. And thanks for joining us for Beyond Impossible. So, yeah. bye. Bye. Thanks, <laughs> Hey, it's been great speaking to you, John. I just want to very quickly ask when, when's your when's your graphic novel Kindred due out? Because you know, I know that you're finishing it up right now. Do you, do you have any idea of, of when it when it'll be out? Is it going to be oh, yeah, no, it's, it's just later for January? Yep. Okay, well, I'm I'm going to try and get hold of a copy of that because he, the the story alone just sounds interesting for me. And oh, it'll be everywhere. I mean, Abrams is a is a large publisher, so you'll be able to get it pretty pretty easily. Cool. Uh, the most we're, we're all we're, we're all we're, we're, what is it? How's it go? When all great books are sold, or we're, yeah, we're all books and magazines are sold. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, so mm-hmm. you'll, you'll be able to find it. Amazon. Amazon. Noble. Yeah. Independent booksellers across the nation, around the world. Or oh, Ian's yeah. Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. On the Kindle. Exactly. So, join us next time for Beyond Impossible. Hi, this is Tom O'Pennicott, and you're listening to the SFP Now podcast. Well, you know, I'd like to thank both Julian and, and John John Jennings for joining us. Um, that's the end of uh, this episode of uh, SFP Now. Um, and we'll be back at you again next time. So, thanks a lot.